Hey, just a heads up. This episode mentions disordered eating and anorexia, as well as fat shaming. So please take care while listening. 2019, uh, I'm at work, came to work laughing, happy, uh, went to the desk, talked to my manager. We were laughing hysterically. It was supposed to finally feel like a normal day for Shanta Quillette Carter-Williams, working her job at the IRS as a revenue officer, a job she loves. Whew, it's my good government job. <laughs> After months of being in and out of the hospital, she truly felt back on her feet. But her troubles were only beginning. So when I went to work, I remember I telling my boss, I'm like, oh my God, guess what? We're going to be seizing it, taking taxpayer stuff all day, every day. <laughs> Everybody better beware, I'm back. Uh, and about, about five minutes later, um, my, my manager said that he heard, he heard screaming. He heard me walk to my desk and he heard laughing. And then the laughing went to screaming. Uh, and he was actually thinking that it was an older co-worker of mine uh, who had maybe fell and hurt herself. And when he came around the corner, it was me and I had collapsed uh, at my desk. Her boss found her collapsed. She'd had a stroke. Shortly after, I went to the emergency room and I was diagnosed with stroke. The doctor had talked to me. He just had this just look of like um, sadness and concern at the same time. It, it just sounded like he said death, like you're, you, you're, you're going to die. That's, that's what I heard. That morning completely changed her life. The work that she loved and the activities she enjoyed, they couldn't exist in her new reality. I, I know my husband would told me when I first arrived to the hospital, I couldn't even, I couldn't tell him who I was. I couldn't, I couldn't identify him. I couldn't tell him his name. Uh, I was uh, incapacitated on my left side. So I had to use a walker, 40 years old, woke up in the morning, able to walk. And by the end of the day, I couldn't. I never went back to work. But what if something could give her her life back? So I went into the office with my doctor and we were discussing options for me because I was considered morbidly obese and I was at risk for stage two diabetes. And so I had told her that I had been consulting with a doctor to get biatric surgery to get the gastric sleeve. She thought that that was ridiculous. She was like, don't do that to your body. If you do that, your body will never be the same. However, her doctor had another option to try. There is a weight loss drug. Then that's when she introduced the Wagovi Ozempic. She put in the prescription and I started the drug the next week. But that solution might also come with a couple tough questions. to Nice Genes, where we cast a weathered eye over world-changing science. Brought to you by Genome British Columbia. I'm your host, Dr. Kaylee Byers, your raised eyebrow towards questionable science. 
This season, we're tackling the assumptions we make every day, both in the lab and on the streets. For today's episode, we're chatting about one that sort of hits close to home for me, which is why I'm going to start with a little story. It was a beautiful day. I was standing at the top of Sunshine Mountain in Banff, Alberta. Sun-soaked snow, soft breeze, two clumsy planks strapped to my feet. With a gentle push, down I went, gliding across fresh powder, faster and faster. Wow, okay, faster and faster. And I took a sharp turn on a bit of ice and... See ya. I slid down a good chunk of that mountain. Snow up my nose and in my hair, my arms were shaky and pain. A pain shot through my knee, which was not awesome. My body was cold, but my leg was on fire. I got down the mountain and with a few bunny hopping moves later, I was sitting in the physiotherapist's office. It sucked, but I wasn't expecting a second glancing blow. Through their murmuring of some exercises I could use to treat my knee, one last parting piece of a medical advice. Uh, you know, you know, your, your knee, knee wouldn't, wouldn't hurt, hurt so, so much if you lost, lost some weight. weight. It made me nauseous. My first thought was, excuse me? But years of internal monologuing, stigma, and childhood teasing were now sitting like a gnashing, angry monster in the corner of the room, validated by a healthcare provider. I came to that office for my health, but, air quotes, walked away thinking about my weight. And ever since, I've ruminated about the offhand associations we make about our physical health and what society considers healthy. Check one, two. This is a challenge I'm not alone with, which is exactly why our producer, Jenny Cunningham, went out to ask the people how they wrestle with questions of weight and health. Do you have any thoughts on how weight affects health? I think people get a bit obsessed about weight. Oh, I think weight really affects health. You know, some people, they, they just tend to have like bigger bone structures. You can't tell how healthy someone is by judging their weight. Weight affects a lot of everything. It's your chance. It's your body. It's your life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a complicated relationship. Yeah. <laughs> As you heard, it's a mixed bag. We each make an assumption around our health and weight between obsession, feeling it's all superficial, or too complex to wade into. So let's unravel the scratchy and uncomfortable sweater that binds our societal view on fatness. I think, I, I think, um, so for me, I feel like I was Shanta Quillette had difficulties with her health before her stroke in 2019, including another heart attack nine months before. My doctor, he's like, I, I don't want to scare you when I tell you this. And he's like, you're having a heart attack. I'm like, what? Like, heart attack? Like, doctors said it was brought on by stress. It almost felt like an attack. I told you that you were stressed out. I told you you needed to quit your job and find a new job. It was just kind of like devastating. So I'm like, I've tried to make all these necessary changes. But after 2019, they found out her family had a history of high cholesterol. So she became extra cautious with her health, but couldn't be as active as she used to be. Once 
I had the stroke and I became incapacitated, it made it harder for me to exercise. It made me harder to do anything. And so I, I was at an unhealthy weight. And in that time, her doctor found that she was at risk of developing type 2 diabetes. That's when her doctor mentioned Ozempic. Uh, and it would help me lose weight. So I immediately realized that I wasn't as hungry as I was before. So I wasn't eating a lot. I didn't have the urge to eat. I was a little bit more tired than normal. First three or four weeks, I was vomiting. I had, you know, diarrhea, all these different things going on with my body. You know, you get on this medication, you're not going to live a glamorous life. People take the medication, continue to eat bad, not exercise, and solely rely on the drug. And that's what I was doing. To get past the initial nausea and side effects. I was eating greasy foods. I love grapes. I love plums. Causing my body to go haywire. And so she switched up her diet a little and... I noticed that the side effects went away. What I realized is that I needed help. For me, this drug changed my life. But what the heck is Ozempic anyway? Well, it's probably the most important breakthrough in the um, treatment of diabetes and obesity in human history. That's me sitting with Dr. Michael Lyon. A medical doctor and medical director of the Obesity Medicine and Diabetes Institute in Vancouver. And oddly, Ozempic has a sort of scaly history. It began with a researcher named Dr. Daniel Drucker. So Ozempic is, is several generations in, 30 or 40 years ago by Daniel Drucker. And it's the discovery of an, a hormone that's produced by, by the intestinal tract. It's a small fragment of protein, a peptide called GLP-1, glucagon-like peptide number one. It was clear that this had potent physiological effects on several systems. And interestingly, they couldn't make the peptide back then where you could extract a gene from the human genome and reproduce a peptide like we do for insulin and so on. So what they had to do is, is look around in nature for something analogous to GLP-1. And the initial discovery of an analog of GLP-1 was found in one of my favorite lizards, the Gila monster. That's right, Gila monster, specifically its venom. It's a black and orange spotted lizard, the size of your forearm and quite poisonous. Which is a, a lizard found in the deserts of Southern US and Northern Mexico. And in the saliva of that lizard, which has a poisonous bite and the poison is in its saliva, they discovered, strangely enough, an analog of GLP-1 and that became a peptide they could manufacture synthetically before DNA technology, uh, recombinant DNA technology, and they made that hormone, and it became something called exenatide, which was the first generation of the GLP-1 analogs, the injectable drugs that have led to this remarkable breakthrough. And then later, we had Saxenda, which was when it was approved for the treatment of obesity at a higher dosage. According to 2019 statistics from the World Health Organization, 1.5 million people globally passed away due to type 2 diabetes. So something like Ozempic could be a lifesaver. Luckily, I had really great insurance. I wasn't paying the $1,600 or $1,500 a month that I, that I know some people were paying. My insurance was covering the, the medication. And so I was getting ready to 
get my prescription for my one milligram, 1.0 milligram. And they told me that they were out of stock. And so I was like, okay. And so they like call back tomorrow. And so I call back the next day. And then one day led to, to, to two weeks and then two weeks led to three weeks. And so, so that's where I went through a period of not having the drug for almost four months. I basically gained all the weight back. That's the moment she realized that Ozempic was having a minute in the spotlight. People with type 2 diabetes... You may have heard about it headlining with celebrities using it and losing weight really fast. Demand for Ozempic and Manjaro exploded as people documented their success stories using the drugs. It's too good to be true. When I look around this room, I can't help but wonder, is Ozempic right for me? Kim Kardashian and Real Housewives of Beverly Hills star Kyle Richards, who both lost a lot of weight in just a few months, have denied claims that they used Ozempic. You know, Mindy Kaling had an Ozempic party. Everybody gave themselves Ozempic injections, like, and they are now being widely prescribed for weight loss. It's become a very hip fad. Harriet Brown. I am a professor of magazine news and digital journalism. She's an author, journalist, and professor with Syracuse University. I would never criticize anyone like for making any choices about their body. But I think it's deeply problematic. When she first heard about Ozempic, she was skeptical. If you're looking at financial interests, these are drugs that you have to take like for the rest of your life, basically, because the minute you stop taking them, you will regain weight. So there's, again, a lot of money to be made. She spent much of her career grappling with the questions we have about our weight and health. And she fears that drugs like this are just another stone that rolls us further down the path of obsessing about our weight. The bigger issue, I think, is that, I mean, the American Pediatric Association, for instance, is now recommending like weight loss treatment for kids as young as two. They recommend talking about bariatric surgery for kids as young as 13. And I'm really afraid that that's going to be one of the big consequences of this new class of drugs, semi-glutide, their GL1 receptors. So I think, again, it's going to be perceived as, well, now there's finally a treatment for obesity and now everyone should be taking it. You know, it's really worrisome. But for Harriet, disentangling our perceptions around weight and health, well, it's deeply personal. First of all, being an American woman, I think, you know, and I grew up in the 60s. Thinness was great. You know, my mother had one of those placards up in the kitchen that said, you know, you can never be too rich or too thin, you know, and that was oh. kind of a <laughs> good, good reminder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, dieting was like a bonding activity. It was something I did with my mother. It was something women did together. I was really, really messed up about body image and weight and all of that for a long time. But, you know, just the the overarching assumption is that fatness is a terrible thing um, and that it's a fate to be avoided at all costs. And I was kind of outraged to discover that, no, the science around weight and health is poor and highly tainted and not at all proving what we all assume to be true. And like then I just fell down the rabbit hole of it. You're listening to Nice Genes a podcast all about the fascinating world of genomics and the evolving science behind it, brought to you by Genome British Columbia. I'm Dr. Kaylee Byers, your host. We want to get more people to listen to the genomics stories that are shaping our world. So if you like nice genes, hit follow on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. 
Kilo Monster your pals by slithering your favorite episode into their podcast feed. In this season, we're tackling some of the big assumptions that hit both society and science. One assumption that has deeply affected my life is the connection we make around our health and our weight. It's something that Harriet Brown feels is a pain point for us as a society. And we kind of get hung up on it. What are some of the big assumptions you think that we make when it comes to fat, weight, and health? Oh boy. (laughs) We could talk about (laughs) this for many, many hours. A few of the most common and most deeply held ones are, we assume that fatness is unhealthy. We assume that fatness is uh, a matter of choice in the sense that anyone can lose weight. So if you are fat, then you have chosen on some level to not lose weight. You know, I've had some really enlightening conversations with people who seemingly without even knowing what they're doing, sort of highlight how deeply that bias runs by saying like perfectly contradictory things in the same conversation. The question she had about these judgments became a focal point in her book, Body of Truth. My oldest daughter, when she was 14, developed anorexia. And in sort of helping her through that, It kind of showed me the other side, you know, like strangers would walk up to her on the street when she was like gaunt and dying and say, oh, my God, you're so beautiful. You could model. What's your secret? You know, like doctors would say things to her, like medical people would compliment her. And it was nauseating. It was, you know, and then like we'd be shopping for high calorie foods for her and like everyone else in the store was looking for the lowest calorie foods and the, you know, talking about their diets. And there we were like, which ice cream has the most calories per half cup? That's the one we want. It just upset me greatly. And it made me as a journalist say, okay, well, I need to get to the bottom of this. Like, I need to understand for myself, like, what is the connection between weight and health? And I kind of expected to find, you know, that there were connections and that, yes, fatness hurts you in these ways. And, you know, that's why we have these cultural assumptions about them. So one of the first quagmires for Harriet to wade through was BMI, a.k.a. the body mass index. It's calculated as how much your weight is in relation to your height. So if you weigh 150 pounds, your BMI will be higher if you're five feet tall versus if you're six feet tall. And those BMIs fall into categories. A quote-unquote normal BMI is considered 18.5 to 24.9. Anything under that is considered underweight. Anything over that is overweight. If you look at correlations of various kinds, you'll notice that, like, we don't even talk about the underweight part of the chart, right? Like, or look at its connections with things because, again, that assumption runs so deep. It's far more lethal to have anorexia than to have a BMI very high. We try to use a surrogate marker to determine something else. So in terms of weight and health, we use BMI. You know, it's helpful to give you an initial guidepost. The sensitivity is very poor. BMI is not a very good predictor of health outcomes. In 2004, an epidemiologist and scientist with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's National Center for Health Statistics wanted to put the baggage behind BMI to the test. Her name was Dr. Catherine Flegel. 
And she's like a very no-nonsense, straight-shooter kind of person. And at some point in the early 2000s, she decided to really bear down on this, what is the relationship between mortality and weight? So what is your risk of dying prematurely at various weights, at various BMIs, since that's the measure that we use? She looked at such huge data sets. I think she expected to find kind of like a linear relationship between weight and health. In other words, the heavier you were, the greater your risk of dying early. But that's not what she found. What she found is, looks more like the Nike swoosh, you know, like that kind of like little J. So you actually have a much greater chance of premature death if you're, quote, underweight, or if your BMI is over, say, 40, than you do anywhere else in the middle. And where is it lowest? Where do you have the least chance of dying prematurely. It's in what we would call overweight to mildly obese. And, you know, she didn't, like, talk about it. She didn't, like, rationalize it. She just published these findings. And wow, there was a firestorm, right? People protesting, people saying this can't be true. You know, she did it a couple of times over the space of about 15 years, and she kept finding the same thing. You know, and she was like, look, I, I don't know what to tell you. This is this is what the data says. Make of it what you will. You know, that my job isn't to interpret it. My job is just to put it out there. So in I, I wonder about, um, like, weight and health. We often frame it as, like, a very clear line, right? Once you're above a certain threshold, you are going to not be well. If you're below a certain threshold... That's the same thing, even though we don't talk about that nearly as much. But there there doesn't appear to actually be like a, as much evidence behind that as it might come across in the assumptions that we make about healthiness based off of a number like BMI. Our current estimate uh, going forward into the future as to the best marker for a relationship between excess weight and poor health, it's liver fat. Uh, in our clinic, we have a, uh, a very sophisticated tool called the FibroScan. It uses um, a, an ultrasonic um, wave to measure both liver fat and fibrosis in the liver or scarring. And it's pretty clear that liver fat is this, probably the single most easy thing to correlate excess weight with poor health outcomes. Epigenetics plays a huge role here. And if we could map the epigenetics of someone with higher BMI, we would see that those with liver fat are the ones that are going to have all kinds of inflammatory systems turned on and things like insulin resistance and resistance to GLP-1. Ozempic is really a a long-lasting form of GLP-1. I mean, I've delved into some of the big studies that say, look, we have found this like cause and effect thing and have big methodological problems. Let's just put it that way. I mean, I looked at studies During my five years of diving into this, I saw studies that were like sample size of 14, you know. Another thing that those studies often do um, is they only follow people for a very short time. So, but that's not actually how people work. And when I sort of got to understand that this relationship between weight and health wasn't as straightforward as I thought, I was like, wow, folks, this is good news. People are going to be happy to hear this because guess what? If you weigh 10 pounds more than your doctor says you should, you're, you're not going to drop dead of a heart attack. You know, like that's, that's not a thing. 
And I was kind of shocked at first that people did not want to hear it. People resisted this mightily, and they still do. And it took me a while to sort of understand, you know, we're so steeped in this relationship between weight and health. You know, before I wrote the book, I did some, uh, reported some stories for the New York Times about, you know, for example, it was just looking at what are some of the effects of weight stigma on people? You know, they have physical health effects, mental health effects, whatever. And wow. And, you know, the New York Times is a reasonably (laughs) educated audience, you know. I mean, the hate emails that I got, the horrible, nasty comments on every story I wrote. Or like if you look at reviews of the book on Amazon, you'll see people writing things like, stop eating donuts, you disgusting pig, and go for a walk, which is rooted in those assumptions. Again, that fat people just are sitting on the couch, eating bonbons all the time, and lazy. And you know what? If you want it, if if that's what you chose to do, that would also be your right to do that. But anyway, <laughs> those those assumptions get applied to everyone. So yeah, it's um, I honestly sort of stopped writing about this subject because it was so bruising at a certain point. What was clear from what Dr. Flegel and what Harriet saw was a flawed way our science and experts had provided a framework for health and weight. And in many cases, it neglected the genomic component of our weight. Genetics plays a huge role. It's also epigenetics too, right? There's, there's at least 300 genes that are involved in, in obesity that are changed epigenetically with lifestyle. You know, like for instance, exposure to endocrine disruptors, environmental toxins, which we are all exposed to constantly, that that can shift weight like at a cellular level. I think we haven't really looked at it deeply because we're so invested in this concept of personal responsibility, but I think there's a lot to be learned there. Here's the deal. There are over 400 genes that we know about associated with becoming overweight or obese. They affect appetite, your sense of fullness, metabolism, what foods you crave, where different fats go on your body, and even whether eating is a way to cope with stress. But those genes aren't a one-size-fits-all for everybody. Research from Harvard suggests that genes may influence an individual's disposition to becoming overweight anywhere from 25% to as high as 80%. And having extra stores of fats is sort of the big reason we're human. For most of human history, if there was abundant food around, it was very important that you ate as much of it as you could, as quickly as you could, and gained as much weight as you could because a famine was always going to be around the next corner. You know, when we're looking for genes that make us vulnerable to obesity, it's a bit of a futile effort in a sense because we're all set up for weight gain, essentially. From an evolutionary perspective, our closest relative is the chimpanzee. We share about 99% of our DNA with them. But one key difference that makes us, us, is fat and how we store it. Chimps have mostly what's called brown fat, ready to go and burn as calories. But us humans have genes that are locked up, which keeps us from converting white fats into those brown fats. Those are what's stored to keep us warm and protect our organs. So why have the extra white fat? Well, it helps us grow our hungry, hungry brain. The actress Joy Nash, um, I don't know if you're familiar with her work, but long ago in the early days of YouTube, um, you can still find it. It's called Fat Rant. And one of the things she says in that very amusing video is, 
to be thin, choose two thin parents. <laughs> I do believe four thin grandparents. <laughs> Excellent. You know, gang, it's no surprise to me that our genetics play a role in our weight. But I don't know if it hurts any less with that understanding. Each comment still hits you, whether it's in a doctor's office or walking the beach or just existing. Those comments can really add up. It can have a big impact on our mental health. Someone, I can't remember who it was, but someone um, said in this space, like, if shame and stigma, you know, inspired people toward better health, like we wouldn't have any health problems, right? We'd all be, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I started to get interested in health when I lost weight, when I almost died from pneumonia as a teenager. And that's why I became a doctor. But now I, I'm 65. I have to keep my BMI under 25 or I have type 2 diabetes, which has led to most of my family die. You know, I have no family left because they all died prematurely from diabetes. And I decided I don't want to do that if I can help it. So I'm like a health nut. Talking to Harriet and Dr. Lyon, they underscore a really important point about health and reveal that what's really going on inside us is complex, physical, mental, the whole shebang. Weight bias, weight bigotry is a very real problem. It's maybe the most serious problem related to obesity is the bias and bigotry associated with it that leads to a whole host of problems. But on the other hand, if obesity was invisible, it would be, without controversy, a disease. But, but it would be defined a bit differently. It would be defined by identifying the real weight-related health issues that are there. In reality, what we are beginning to know um, as we begin to study all kinds of stigma, right, around race, gender, um, sexual identities of all kinds, um, is that when you live in a stigmatized body, it takes a toll on your health. The incredible stress, the elevated levels of cortisol, the, you know, uh, higher levels of inflammation, all of the things that we know come from living in a stigmatized condition. Can we talk about behaviors that actually improve health, like getting more exercise, like eating, eating in a certain way, like real health behaviors? and not just reverting to the knee-jerk of lose weight. And, and that speaks to another assumption, and that assumption is that dieting or weight loss is benign. Mm. I've actually had scientists say to me, like, well, okay, even if you do gain the weight back over five years, at least you've been thin for a period of time, and that's better for you. Actually, no, it's not better for you. It's actually better for you to be at a stable weight than it is to go up and down, up and down, has all kinds of metabolic consequences, inflammatory consequences. It's not benign to diet. It's harmful. Like any doctor will just matter-of-factly recommend, lose some weight. Okay, how am I supposed to do that in a way that's healthy and sustainable and isn't going to mess up my body? You know, if, if I could tell people one thing, I would just say, please don't comment on other people's bodies. Like just stop like why why is that the first thing we say right <laughs> yeah i recently found out is that oh yeah so <laughs> uh so <laughs> that's what i call it chanticoolette has a supply of ozempic again after going without it for a few months she nearly gained back all the weight she had lost but it wasn't entirely about losing the weight for her to begin with in her case it was a matter of living her life and now she uses her experience in a stand-up routine 
as a comedian. My name is Shanti Q. I'm from Denver, Colorado. And no. And before my stroke, I used to take life with a grain of salt. But that's how I got there. The song. <laughs> You know, we we all are going to come to that day. We don't we don't know when, but we all are going to be faced with death at some point in time. And so it, I had to face that and I had to decide if I was going to die internally or if I was going to live. Right. <laughs> there was sometimes I was like, Lord, you could have just took me out. child. I didn't, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, what, what you doing up there? I would have loved to see what you was doing up there. Uh, so it was it was <laughs> if, if I was really going to take this situation and make it something, I was going to live my last days. I was going to let my last days be my greater days. I look in the mirror every day, but naked, and I say, we the best. Our guests for today were Harriet Brown, author and professor at the S.I. Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University, Dr. Michael Lyon, medical director of the Obesity Medical and Diabetes Institute, and Chantequillette Carter-Williams, heart and health advocate and comedian. You've been listening to Nice Genes a podcast brought to you by Genome British Columbia. If you like this episode, go check out some of our previous ones wherever you listen from. Share us with your friends and leave us a review. You can also DM the show on Twitter by going to at GenomeBC. And if you're listening with kiddos or you're a teacher looking to spice up your lessons, we have learn along activity sheets added to the show description of each episode. If you like Gila Monster Venom, it's just the tip of the iceberg for powerful poisons. Join us on our next episode for a ghoulish dive into titillating toxins. I also want to ask, so you were talking about sort of this early mindset about colonialism and and toxins. How did that relate back to sort of like early pharmacology? I think a lot of it was also based on the idea of, you know, specifically applied poisons. Right. However, they weren't very good at it. (laughs) (laughs) So... We saw things like arsenic used as cure-all. We saw patent medicines. We even see now colloidal silver, people ingesting colloidal silver, which is really, really dangerous. And people would ingest these dangerous metals because at that time, I think there was a lot, again, of this dominion idea of we can conquer illness. I love creepy crawly season. So we look forward to sharing another spotty tale with you next time.